Do you think these pandemic measures will change the fundamental nature of capitalism or will it actually return to a new state of normal or crisis? What you said now, Samo, this is what in TV quiz shows they call the one million dollar question, you know. So to avoid all misunderstanding, already from the way I describe this communism as war communism, it's clear that I don't have in mind what Marx thought about communism, society of freedom and affluence and so on. I refer here to one of Marx's definitions of communism, which incidentally is almost literally taken from a passage from, I think, gospel, but just each according to his needs, from each according to his abilities. Now, this doesn't mean I want a, a, a Lamborghini car, I get it, and so on. It means that, and all everybody agrees with it, that's why Trump sent checks to tens of millions and so on, that in such an emergency state, the priority is not profit market mechanisms and so on, at least for some time. The priority is to control the health situation and to guarantee so that people don't starve and so on, a minimum of existence. This thing should simply be absolutely prioritized. And I also make it clear that this is not just I sit at home and get what I need. I think maybe if the second wave will be even worse, I'm not afraid to say this. People will proclaim me a totalitarian or what. What if many people will have to be temporarily, not in a Stalinist way, mobilized? For example, I recently read about the troubles in uh, agriculture harvesting now. In Tennessee, they tested one farm with 200 workers. All of them were positive. Similar in France, uh, mines and slaughterhouses. So the very, the very mode of production actually has to change then. Like the factory farms and so on, perhaps they just are not viable. Yeah, but, yeah, but at the same time, I am. I got my lesson. I was nonetheless kind of a dis- dissident in the last decades of ex-Yugoslavia. I was jobless for five years unemployed and so on. So I am well aware that if simply the state centralizes it, you know, it's not simply efficient. Not only this is the ideal space for corruption and so on, but the paradox of this centralized systems is that beneath the surface, they are much more chaotic and disorganized. For example, they, they, invest, they invest all their energy in the appearance of order and the appearance yes. of functionality, which leaves almost no energy for the actual substance and reality yes. of it. Right. And maybe you know the case I read when, I hope now it's better, when China began to open a month, a month and a half ago. You know what yes. happened in Wuhan? The order came, restart production. But they, in factories, didn't have enough material to do it. Supply didn't work. So it's ironic, in the best old communist way, what they did is they noted through some friends that authorities measure production by how much electricity they spend. For and running. how much power is consumed. So they let the machines yeah, so run through the night. The machine doing nothing. You see, yes. that's the problem. So 
It's not true that in liberal democracies, you have freedom but chaos under totalitarianism, you have order and so on. Uh, I read a good economic history of Soviet Union, where they claim that uh, in Brezhnev era, beneath the surface of plan economically, it was a big chaos. A factory, and, you have to use links, bribe to get the material, you falsify statistics all the time. So I'm not simply saying let's return to that type of communism. I'm not crazy. It's inefficient. All yeah. I'm saying is that in some sense, at certain levels, uh, decisions will have to be taken where how to reorient production and so on. And things will have to be prioritized, but this cannot be done simply through market mechanisms. Now, just a little bit. Now I will not be so. <laughs> now, second point. Okay, people thought at least at the beginning. Yeah, okay, for half a year, then things are back to normal. Well, I'm an atheist, but I pray it will be so. But I have my doubts. Did you notice that? The cases were up then. The formula which was we reached the plateau, and the yes. idea was then we will like slowly down. reduce yeah, it and eventually we'll control the diseases at a low level. This yeah. can drag on. Then what worries me further is how, and that's what I call perfect storm, how this health crisis is combined with other crises. For example, why don't people worry more about it? Uh, uh, food production, you know, that low-cost low catastrophe from uh, Eastern Africa to Pakistan and India. Now. Yes. A nightmare. It then, could uh, trigger then a massive refugee flu. wave. Yeah, yeah, then swine flu and so on. So we have well, this problem. Much of, your, much of your writing does center on what constitutes political event, right? A political event is something that can't really be explained by the existing ideology. So it breaks the old narrative and opens space for yeah. ideological competition. But and what you're describing is- right now here, I want to just say is, you know, if, if events are moving so fast that yeah. it's impossible to ideologically process them, do we still have political events? I mean, in a matter of days, we flipped from the pandemic coverage to riot coverage and protest coverage. And then few people outside of Australia still remember the wildfires from earlier this year. There was supposed to be this big environmental disaster. I mean, I, I, I don't even remember who Greta is, right? She's been disappeared somehow. And these crises, they, they just haven't been processed. Not only this, but did you notice how uh, uh, precisely people who proposed things that would have been used useful now, like uh, uh, Bernie Sanders and so on, also practically disappeared. Nobody, almost nobody talks about Bernie now. I mean, uh, the the, the consensus is overwhelming in this sense because, like, you know, a decision has been reached, and insofar as most people are concerned, we really should be focusing all our energy into the pre-existing narrow political process of the two big political parties here in the U.S., and what I want to also ask you and, and yeah. see, see your opinion, yeah. is it useful to build uh, political institutions outside the main two parties? Like there's been just none of that, at least not on a deep level. And so I think we've actually seen an overhang of, of political change for a very, very long time here. That's, is, but this problem is not only now the coronavirus epidemics problem. It began already earlier. It was 
that's right for me before crucial conflict was within the democratic party between mm-hmm. and i don't mean this in an aggressive way let's call them the establishment wing and bernie sanders it yes. was a serious split there Bernie was almost a democratic Trump because Trump also broke with at least part of the establishment of the Republican Party. They, they were both violating the party consensus. I'm not an abstract, yes, stupid leftist who wants a revolution and so on. I just think, and I hope we agree on this, what we are witnessing now with protests exploding and that's very interesting, anti-racist protests exploding not only in the United States, but they are spreading all around the world, England, France, even Australia, and so on. What worries me, because this is how political instability enters, is that there is obviously a certain rate protest energy, which cannot be adequately captured by traditional political coordinates. So I think that it's on behalf of the stability of our system to find a way for this energy to articulate itself. I will quote you here somebody... ...continue for a very long time. I note that the Yellow Jacket protests in France, they never stopped. They've been going for two, two years. We just have ceased essentially to report on them. And the same happens with the Hong Kong protests, which continue to drag on. We could imagine the current ones dragging on for two or three years. But you know what worries me? That uh, it seems that all our life at different domains is turning in this direction. Something explosive happened. Then, since we watch too many bad Hollywood movies, we... Mm -hmm think a catastrophe like a big explosion and then gradually the trauma is over, life returns. But conflicts just drag on. Remember the Ukraine war, Ukraine versus Russia. Yes, it's been frozen in that state for 10 years. It goes on. It goes on. You know, uh, you remember Libyan war or even better, Syrian war. Things just go on and go on. And what I'm afraid is that it's similar with with the uh, COVID epidemics. It's not a clear climax and then it just goes on. We are entering a new world so that I don't lose my thread. Immediately I will give you back the world. That's my answer to the big question. Does this mean that capitalism is... Any minimally intelligent system knows when you make a compromise, you do even elements of universal basic income and so on. But then when things return to normal, you try to restart the old system. What worries me is that too many things are happening. Again, possible food crisis, uh, all these protests, even international conflicts, and also uh, uh, other ecological catastrophes. For example, you remember in close to Norilsk, which incidentally was one of the biggest gulag sites. In, the, in Russia. Or yes. Whatever of, yeah, 20, uh, 20 million uh, tons of oil or whatever spilled into the sea. But you know what was the reason I read about it? Global warming. Because these uh, holding buildings 
were built on foundations which couldn't endure through uh, uh, in the time of it, it permafrost. Was built on permafrost, right? And the permafrost yeah, started yeah. melting, and then the building and that's collapsed. The that's the reason. So what worries me is this: each of these conflicts taken by itself can be managed. I worry about the combination. And just to conclude, back to the protests. I support them, of course. But I'm not a naive guy who says, oh, even if they are looting my store, welcome, you are on the progressive side of history. Intelligent black people, like the one who is very much to the left, but not an idiot, Ras Baraka, the son of the poet, the mayor, or he was, I don't know if he still is, of Newark. He yes. said to black people, we cannot win with guns. We will always lose at that level. We have to move from guns to books. Formulate our protests in an articulated way as a political pro uh, program and so on and so on. I don't agree with those who think let's go and terrorize the system through violent measures and so on and so on. No, this is a total deadlock. It should be in the interest of all of us to help them even, but not in a patronizing way, the protesting blacks to articulate their demand in more precise way, to look at the roots of racism and so on and so on. Because, you know, violent outbursts are always a symptom. Symptom in the Freudian sense, where symptom is an acting out. You cannot put it in words, so you explode. It's a nice paradox, because usually anti-intellectuals tell us, thinkers, that you just talk, we need to act. No, quite often we act because we are not able to pronounce the correct word, to talk. That's what is happening. I mean, you paradoxically describe inaction and thought as perhaps the most subversive or transformative activity. But then what, what kind of thinking transforms society? What is the kind you of thinking you would like people to advance. do? I'm a pessimist here, as you probably know. My favorite paraphrase of Marx, I repeated this to the horror of my Marxist friends, is that in contrast to Marx, we should say, in the 20th century, we maybe wanted to change the world too much, and we didn't interpret it properly. So our thesis 11 should be today, Instead of just wanting to change the world, let's interpret it, you know. So in interpretation we, we of the world. We are in some kind of uh, what my friend Marxist, Fred Jameson, calls uh, lack of cognitive mapping. Listen, even if you talk with theorists, Marxist or right-wingers, what is China today? Some people say it's the old communist dictatorship that they just allow a little bit of capitalism, mm -hmm. Others say it's neo-feudalism. Neo Third people say it's already capitalism, parties just serving capital. We simply, and I don't mean a perfect dogma, but just a basic orientation. We simply don't have a basic orientation of what effectively is going on today. And the danger in such a situation is although I'm not a total pessimist here, is that then populism 
explodes. You know? Although, yes. would you agree, some or not, you as a system theorist, that one of the nice surprises, it's cynical to use this word, but nonetheless, of present situation is that, you know, what? That populism obviously didn't work. Look at the top three countries. Yes, I mean, yes. the United States, Russia, Brazil. They all have a leader who tries to act in a populist, even a little bit authoritarian way. And they are the three great failures. I mean, so perhaps I the hope... important lesson here is that maybe populists are extremely good at understanding people. Perhaps they excel at human psychology, maybe even excel at adversarial yes. games. But then something that's not really an adversary, not an adversary in a classical sense, something that's yes. a natural yes. phenomena is a complete yeah. failure because there's no way to, to really mobilize in that direction. Like the only yeah, way to mobilize in that direction is said. to... Yeah. Mm -hmm. Populism is good in mystifying, mobilizing people for uh, struggles, antagonisms. But here we have in the most naive scientific way, a real problem, a stupid self-replicating uh, virus. And here mm -hmm. it, doesn't, it doesn't work. So, uh, and you know why this is important on the other hand? Because <coughs> it's fashionable for Marxists to be against state power, you know, alienated and yes, so on. To be, to be as anarchistic no, as possible. I think what we need like daily bread today is not a totalitarian state, but a state which is as far as possible well-functioning, efficient, and that somehow you or me as an ordinary citizen trust. Mm -hmm. trust so a, a high degree of mutually justified trust between both the government and the citizens, because I could argue that perhaps the current states through the very act of mass surveillance and this kind of political control and yes. this like very subtle yes. same manipulation of social media algorithms betray to the citizens that don't trust me. I don't trust you. Right. I think it's a very, a very mutual relationship of this mutual trust between, say, government and citizenry. Right. And I think that the question is, where does the distrust begin? Like, perhaps we were bad citizens. Maybe that's why the government distrusted us. Right. I think this is, you know, usually I think it's it's very easy to blame um, the power structure itself. But we are all always complicit in it. No, I I agree with it, and especially now that we have such an outcry, this uh, phone uh, mechanisms that they can track where you move and so on, you know. I claim, what's a big fuss? If it mm -hmm. really helps me to avoid contacts, go on. I worry much more about the fact that already before the epidemics, we know yes. that all big countries... China, United States, I know the case of Israel through France, were already listening, recording all phone conversations, all, uh, uh, all, uh, all, uh, 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 all internet messages, and so on and so on. At least this time, they are controlling us in some sense for our own good. You know that you it's avoid. An interesting, it's an interesting paradox. We have accepted quietly that all our data can be used for national security purposes. Yeah, yeah. But we object or don't allow for the use of that very same data for health benefits. That strikes us as dystopian. And, and, and it's sort of like it's sort of like you know just where you move. You know, 
It's yes. much less than following my thoughts in my PC and so on and so on. Well, it's, it's the metadata, right, of where you're going with your phone. They did a study a few years back in Japan that, you know, for the most time, 95% of, pe- 95% of the time, people are never more than two meters away from their phone. So the phone would actually just track quite well where you physically go and where you might spread the yeah. virus. But again, I'm not afraid of this. I think mm-hmm. worry about real worry about real problems, you know. On the mm-hmm. other hand, if I may go into slightly more obscene waters, which I like, I think that one possible benefit of it's horrible to talk like this, because I am horrified, living anxiety, but of the epidemics will be passion and sexuality. I don't mm-hmm. think the effect will be what people complain, uh, uh, sex will become digital, no personal contact. First, sex already became digital. I know, I follow the situation here in Slovenia, which is, as mm-hmm. your beloved President Trump would have put it, a small shit hole of a country or whatever. No? Well, I'm, I'm, from, I'm from the same country, so maybe I'd object. I know, I know. <laughs> Even here, uh, uh, I spoke with the head of the class of my younger son, who told mm-hmm. me that he noticed that in the last 10 years, sex life begins much later. Mm-hmm. We were much further 10 years ago, usually around 15, pupils mm-hmm. began to have sex life. Now it's 17, 18. And as one friend of my son told me, why bother with the real partner? The most he's ready to do is one night stand. Otherwise, you masturbate in front of a of a of a, of a screen in in two minutes or whatever you are over. I think that sex was already to a large degree digitalized, and that bodily contact will become much more something that concerns passion. If you read, interesting. If you meet real love passion, it has to be touched. And that's a deep insight that you find even with some movie makers, like I like to quote Andrei Tarkovsky, who said, uh, 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 the soul without a body, it's even more sinful than a body without a dress. You know, our own, yes. own only medium to, uh, to, uh, to, to the other person is through the body. So, so maybe, the only way we can cross that chasm between, between yeah, people. So and I between think that paradoxically, I'm not a pessimist here. We will maybe rediscover all the intensity of the physical contact. So instead of a progress towards alienation to perhaps this kind of Japanese style, you know, isolated hikomori thing where no one ever leaves their living room, never connects to others, yeah. perhaps precisely this, precisely the pandemic and so on results in a reattachment of meaning to physical touch and, and erotic absolutely. touch. I absolutely oh. predict. Okay, now there are open questions. But, but to, go, to, go, to go from the vulgar to the obscene, right? Can I ask yeah. you about politics just a little bit more? Like in 1990, you ran for the president of, you know, the actually, I would say, lovely country we're both from. And in this first free election, you got 36% of the votes, I think. What, what lesson did you learn from this experience? Wait a minute. I didn't run for the president I uh, the collective, the collective presidency. as a collective yeah, yeah. board. You yeah, must yeah. know it was part of Tito, Titoist mythology. 
They said after Tito died, nobody can replace him, so we need a collective body. Body. So, and this was continued in the first phase of independence. But the real reason that I ran for that collective body, and this collective body had four members and a president, as always, I ended fifth. <laughs> Part of a percentage. Uh, the reason was to help my party. And many leftists even are mad at me now because it was liberal, democratic, very moderate left party. But I'm not ashamed of it. You know why? At that point, we old leftists felt very well. The danger of this first wave of democracy is to get, to allow one party or some kind of nationalist platform to basically monopolize, hegemonize the entire political field. It can be right-wing party, as in Croatia. It can be, at least nominally, left-wing party like Milosevic in Serbia. The point was... So basically... Yeah, we saw... So I was going to say you saw the transition from communism to to very extreme nationalism, and you considered the liberal party as a break on this. That was our first task. We said to ourselves... Forget about radical leftist programs. Let's at least keep the space open for more pluralist democracy where there is place for everybody, for for alternative culture and so on and so on. And uh, we almost, not quite, succeeded. For a long time, Slovenia avoided this type of rule of one big nationalist party, even now when Janes Janša, a right-wing nationalist, is in power, mm-hmm. he cannot get above 30% of the votes. It's, yes. He was able to take over because of the conflict, they can also be very corrupted and so on, because of the conflict in the so-called moderate left, so-called. Mm-hmm. I think they are a simple liberal center and so on. So you ran to bolster the this political process with yes. basically name yes. recognition, yes. with intellectual authority, because, you know, Slovenian culture, very much Central European, they respect the professor, they respect the academic. And I then want to ask you, like, no, you pursued it. Which is hmm. why I have very nostalgic memories of that time, late 80s. Mm-hmm. It's because uh, <laughs> this was not only a specificity of Slovenia, but also of some other communist countries, one of the points of origin of dissidents, intellectual dissidents, was philosophy, social theory. Mm-hmm. Which is why, you yes. know, all books were selling, ordinary people listened to us, and so on, read philosophy. It was a wonderful intellectual moment. At the same time, uh, communists in power were intelligent enough to see the writing of the world. So, you know, maybe it will be of some interest to some of our viewers, a comical detail that I love. After 85, it was very difficult to be prosecuted and arrested for being too critical. So some of my friends wrote violent critique of Yugoslav Communist Party, worse than Stalinism and so on. And then they waited. Where would they go get the invitation to appear at the court because they wanted this as a badge of honor for democracy. No, nothing right, happened. Right. A friend of mine got an invitation to a debate to a central committee. He went there, 
said the same things, and they told him, so nice that you came to talk to us, come again. (laughs) (laughs) In a way, they were minting authority off of talking to dissidents and trying to also, like, minimize the impact of dissidents, right? They become, as you said, a badge of honor, almost martyr-like. So you pursue this career. I don't know what was your impression, but somewhere... From even, I would say, early 80s, but definitely after 83, 84. The Communist Party, at least in Slovenia, behaved as if they knew that the game is over. And their main concern was how to survive democracy. What to do? Uh, Tolerate differences uh, 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 and especially play the nationalist game, we protect in Belgrade, Slovene interests, and so on, you know. The good mm-hmm, thing mm-hmm. is that they didn't do what Milosevic did. They never try, succeeded in monopolizing from a nationalist stand, standpoint the entire scene, like we speak for Slovenia, and so on, you know. But I'm, perhaps it's time now to move to the audience questions. Okay, believe in open, free debate. Mm-hmm. And he told mm-hmm. me, of course, I love it. But as a communist, I know that open, free debates should be especially well prepared in advance to stop any yes. reaction. Sorry, oh. go on. So let's jump into the audience questions. Um, first question is, uh, what long-term consequences might society face because of the pandemic? And what near-term consequences in the mid to long term? Again, I don't know enough because things which don't depend on our will, but maybe of scientific knowledge and so on, like if there is a fast fast vaccine or whatever, it will relatively fast. At the end of this year, it will change the situation. What I think... And I, again, as an atheist, pray to God that I'm wrong. But what I fear is that, first, these epidemics will let you, it will drag on. In parts of the world, it will get a little bit better, then you never know what will happen. And especially, it will be combined with other things. So I do think this, for foreseeable times, I'm counting years, it, some kind of emergency state will go on. And the big choice is what to do. I see, don't be afraid, I will stop quickly. I will not get lost. I see now three main options. The one is Trump-Bolsonaro. Bolsonaro, nonetheless, much worse than Trump, which is brutally, the main thing is that Economy is moving and that our, what we consider a normal daily way of life, socializing remains. And they don't say this publicly, but the implication is, even if thousands are dying, let's do this. And let me tell you something. As much as I despise these politicians, in a way, I understand their line of argumentation. Are you, are we aware what a horrible change of our daily rituals, this is. You cannot embrace people, touch people, you cannot go on, you cannot communicate. I totally understand one anti-quarantine protester who said, no, I don't want to wear a mask, I'm no longer human, I'm like a dog, I lose my dignity and so on. So this is one option. The other option that I also don't like is the 
let's call it Eric Schmidt uh, uh, Cuomo Bill Gates option. A vision of the new digitalized space where even I will do doctor's exams through the web, food will be brought to me through, sounds like to, to, uh, to institutionalize, not necessarily in a totalitarian sense, our self-isolation so that we all will live in some kind of bubbles. My skepticism towards this, it's a well-known one, I'm not very original here, it's that uh, many of us can live like this, but a great percentage, at least 40% of the people, should nonetheless be out, gathering harvest, uh, delivering food, hospitals, and so on and so on. So I don't think this works. What I see as a solution, I'm not afraid of self-isolation and so on, is uh, it doesn't resolve all the problems. I follow around the world how they deal with epidemics. For example, where they were relatively successful lately in Spain. You know what we don't read enough? Local communities. Something beautiful happened in Spain, I was told. In parts of Madrid and Barcelona, local communities constituted a group who said, okay, this couple of blocks is our terrain. Let's check who is ill, who needs help. Yes. They cannot do everything. You need to mobilize local communities. So the state should be, but should do this. And the other thing, it's clear. We need more, not the fear of right-wing populists, uh, some uh, international authority beyond nation-state. No, this opens an incredible space of new corruption. But nonetheless, international cooperation. It's okay. We all love now Australia and especially New Zealand. You know. Uh, Free, but you know, you cannot, this may work for a couple of months, this bubble idea. We are safe. No, it doesn't work. We have to, even if we have isolation and so on, international authorities have to, sorry, nation states have to collaborate. Not only health, if there is a vaccine, everybody should get it and so on and so on, but also food, if there will be hunger coordination, all these problems can be solved, but at these three levels, not only efficient state, but help of local communities and above. Above, I mean, international collaboration. I don't agree often with Chinese, no? Because, you know, what's for me the best argument against China, they boast so much we did it. No. Yes. The best case in China are precisely two territories which don't want to be part of China. The true success are Hong Kong and Taiwan. You know? yes. so you can do it without total communist power. But when they said, it seems to me so obvious. For example, if there will be a vaccine, okay, you allow the company some profit. But nonetheless, it should be basically considered the vaccine if it will work a uh, 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 common property of the entire world. You know, what people should see is that this is in the interest of all of us. It's not that I live in a safe country across the border, uh, 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 epidemic goes on. No, no, no. We cannot think like this. So to find a way very patiently, and that's why aren't you set for this? I think that today more than ever, all states, and even internationally, we need good leaders. Mm -hmm. We need 
leaders who tell the bitter truth, but with some kind of not abstract hope, like together we can do it and so on. And the now it's become a paradox. I like it to annoy my pseudo-leftist friends. My reproach to Trump is not that he is a too authoritarian leader, but that he's not enough. <laughs> you know, <laughs> he should act more and more as one side in a conflict. It would be so much. I mean, that's more the appearance of authoritarianism rather than the substance of it. <laughs> wonderful formula. That be, be really authoritarian. <laughs> that would be that would be my my reproach to Trump. You know, the the the, the you, you know, and the price he pays for this is that now United States is in a kind of ideological civil war, not just the usual culture war between, as they say, with regard to epidemics, uh, masks or no masks. No. Let's keep mm-hmm. our ordinary way of life and uh, this uh, 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 usually more liberal leftist uh, self-isolation and so on. But don't forget that these protests which are exploding now are outside this duality. It's not liberals. One of the black guys, he maybe simplified it a little bit too much. Van Jones, I think, in a, in a commentary on CNN, He said that, no, uh, uh, Hillary Clinton, liberal, who pretends to be multicultural, but uh, still retains all these racist prejudices, is much more dangerous than Mm. a direct Ku Klux Klan member. So there is a lot of work to be done here. But again, what I already said, it's absolutely crucial that this protest energy gets... transferred into some kind of consistent political program. If not, United States will just come closer to some kind of ideological civil war. It will hurt its image very much. You know, to go, I wonder, Samo, if you would agree, even a step further, the main result of Trump's presidency may well be that United States will lose whatever remained after George Bush of its international status. (laughs) Well, the, the status of the U.S. is is dropping very, very quickly. Yeah. But I will say yeah. here that China's status is an interesting way also drop because in a way, oh, you know, it's an act of nature where yeah. the virus comes from. But everyone thinks of it as the Chinese virus, even if you say it's, that's not the way to think about it. It's not only that. It's very interesting how, for example, and leftist friends are telling me this, how much China is now hated in parts of Africa and Latin America, where mm. Chinese capitalists come, they are worse than any old-fashioned imperialist and so on. Did you read a couple of days ago, again in Zab- Zambia, in where they have compromised, I think, I'm not sure. in unrest, they killed some Chinese managers and so on and so on. They are much more brutal in their exploitation. You know, Syriza, Tsipras himself told me, the Chinese bought, bought the Piraeus Harbor. The first thing they did is find a legal loophole, cancel, uh, abolish trade unions, uh, fire half the people, and so on and so on. It's time for us, with all my best wishes for the Chinese people, but to start talk also about Chinese neocolonialism, which can be often more brutal than the standard Western uh, 
economic neocolonialism, you know. And this is very important what you said. It's not as simple as you thought it's the it's the moment of China, United States around, China the only power. First we will see the real data. As I always said, what we use now, I hope we all agree, is a couple of Chinese Julian's songs. <laughs> To, to learn, but they, but you know, I signed letters for Assange. I support him. But always I warn my friends that before, yes, we should criticize. It's horrible what the United States are doing. But just imagine what would have happened to a Chinese Assange. <laughs> we not hear about him. His entire family, up to second cousins, would probably have disappeared and so on and so on. You know, so no. We need an army of Assanges all over the world, but I don't think Absolutely. where that army was going to come this from. This is very important because I agree with you. Otherwise, these new necessities of state control and so on can, of course, also be terribly misused and so on. That's why I made this running gag joke. Maybe you know it. My formula is communism with Julian Assange. <laughs> 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 Tolerate even needs Assange. People like Assange who bring who bring out uh, the state secrets and so on and so on. I mean, secrets which are relevant. You see, I'm not saying we shouldn't be controlled. I'm just saying I would like to know how I am controlled and to what purpose I am controlled. And this doesn't cancel control. There still can be a lot of control, but control should be as much as possible transparent that you know what's going on like i wouldn't honestly honestly tell me what you want me to do is what you're asking for yeah 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 and i think people as the ongoing situation clearly demonstrates don't you think that people are, are ready to to accept many things they in europe precisely did you notice this irony that in europe the most democratic countries made least problems with uh, self-isolation, drones, and all that stuff, and so on and so on. When you have basic democratic trust, people are ready to accept many things. Nobody complained in Norway, in Finland. Sweden is another story. Can I tell you something? I love Sweden. But you know that there is from the very beginning a dark side in Sweden. Do you know that till early 60s, I think, Sweden was doing some genetic regulation, chemically castrating men who were considered uh, too stupid to breed children and so on. And what friends, Swedish friends, are telling me is that there is something of it going on now. That they knew the old people ill will be dying. And they did consciously, but not publicly, sacrifice them. This is why they are paying the price now. You see now Norway and Norway opening borders, but not to Sweden. Right. You know? Right. Yeah, so so it's, a challenging, it's a challenging moment. That's where I see politics. Yeah. You see, let I, me see, I mentioned different Let me jump in with another audience question here for you. Of course. I'm very sorry. I talked too much. Yeah. No worries. No worries. Uh, somebody asked, how would you describe the relationship between liberal capitalism and racism? Is it even possible to have a functional capitalist nation state without <laughs> some form of racism? 
it's a complex question because, of course, a radical leftist would have said, no, it's not possible. Capitalism always needs racism. But uh, it's not absolutely necessary. I would say always look at the specific situation. For example, in the United States, of course, it's not so just black people. It's this ambiguous relationship towards Latino immigrants, no? Trump talking against them all the time, but we know now that you cannot simply uh, uh, organize normal harvest without them and so on, you know? So it's simply part of this uh, constellation, but what I, where I agree with that guy, Van Jones, is that, what I don't like about this liberal approach is this uh, politically correct uh, culturalization, you know, as if the problem with racism is, you know, I say this uh, politically correct, endless, it's like uh, Catholic confession at its worst form, self-examination. I use that word. Was it maybe already implicitly racist or a friend of mine I was flying with him. My God, look that beautiful flight attendant. I think, oh my God, was this already sexism, etc. No, I, in my ideal society, maybe it's a utopia, you can use all the dirty jokes, sexist and so on, but they will not function in a racist way. That's how I function with my black African-American friends. And uh, that's why my personal, it's interesting that when I'm attacked for racism, it's always by white liberals, with black people, with Native Americans. I love them. Do you know much other story happens to me in Missoula, Montana? A Native American told me why he hates the term Native American. Like, what are you then, cultural Americans? We are Native. He told me we much prefer to be Indians. At least our name is a monument to white man's stupidity. Who thought they're India, you know? And they especially, that's a deep insight. My Native American friends told me they especially hate white liberals who come to visit them and say, oh, I admire you. You have this holistic approach to nature, you know? You don't exploit nature and so on. And my Native American friend told me that he shouted back at them, look, come and live in my miserable hut and give me your L.A. Uh, suburb house. And I would quite like to be alienated from nature there and so on and so on. That, you know, all Native Americans and Blacks that I know and so on, they know very well how hypocritical and condescending this liberal respect for their way of life can be. They knew that here the true racism is hidden. That's why, to conclude, you will like this. I once, and they applauded me, women. I addressed women um, in the hall and I told them, let's say you have a boyfriend who tells you, here are my dirty socks, you are a woman, wash them. I told this lady, okay, ladies, generally, don't drop him. If he says this, maybe you can retrain him. But let's say that you have a boyfriend who tells you, you know what, we men are caught in Cartesian dominating technological mind. 
you really have more holistic approach. You don't exploit nature. You are in dialogue with nature. I told ladies there, if your boyfriend tells you this, run away as quickly as possible. <laughs> you are lost, you know. And it's not a joke. I mean it seriously. Talk with real minority people, Native Americans, Blacks, and so on. They know very well that the true core of everyday racism is masked as this respect. Even identity politics is suspicious here. From South Africa, French told me when they were fighting for uh, uh, black votes against apartheid, you know who advocated apartheid? We blacks should go our way. That uh, a king of one province there who was paid by apartheid. Apartheid justified itself as in almost Marxist term. I read an apartheid brochure where they say, if we just give blacks the same right, it will be all the same technological alienated culture and so on. So it's precisely to keep the diversity of cultures that we need apartheid and so on. The first formula in New Zealand, I said this, they applauded. The first formula of anti-racism is, yes, we white liberals are consumerist, alienated, allow the poor also to become like us. Don't terrorize the poor. You can't yourself. Uh, next question from the audience. Uh, we actually have a couple of these are sort of all around the same topic. As you look at the unfolding social movement through the protests, uh, what is your diagnosis about what is being uh, uh, what is being pursued effectively in terms of change, and what where do you think <laughs> protest might uh, end up being futile? And how would you advise people engaged in them uh, to achieve greater outcomes from their efforts uh, in terms of? Here you must be very precise and uh, define what you mean by greater outcome. You know, of course, I'm sorry to say, but I'm here open. I talk like this to my black friends. If I were to find myself on a street, protest, say, hey, you are a white guy, beat me, rob my car, whatever, of course, I would even run for the police. I mean, I'm not this kind of a crazy leftist who would say, okay, we exploited you, so come beat me, you have the right, you know. That's what I already said. I would return to that. I don't think we have here a certain energy of rage, protest, and it's open. It's, I don't have a simple answer. Let's hope it will be articulated in some consistent program, and it's not clear. Even I don't have a simple formula how to do it. For example, some people, like even Christopher Hitchens, were for general reparations to black people. I don't know how many trillions should be given so that every black guy gets something and so on and so on. I doubt if this would have worked. It would maybe stigmatize them even more. You know, real racism, which is not just embedded, that's the problem of political correctness. They treat racism as if it's deep in their soul, some prejudices, and if a uh, black guy, for example, robs you or beats you, they all of a sudden reify, objectivize him. They say he's not responsible, he's a product of exploitation, circumstances. 
Many black friends complained to me, it's horrible what they are doing. They seem to show sympathy for us. But the fact is that they treat even the worst racists as morally responsible. That's why they are guilty. And they treat us blacks as just product of circumstance. And so on. Mm. It's, not, it's a very complex process. Economic measures, logic of social recognition. But what I would especially emphasize is no liberal patronizing. You know, even affirmative action, I am for it. But often, like I had a black friend who is excellent student, but he told me precisely his liberal white friends, he detected how they treat him as, oh, yeah, you are here at Princeton because it's affirmative action, like otherwise we know you wouldn't be here. Black people, it's not just their objective circumstances that, that we should uh, change. They should be treated as, as uh, uh, morally responsible adult people, not patronized. Let me conclude with another story that you will find amusing. I met in Paris years ago a guy from Nigeria who told me that he read a book, an old travelogue by a British guy, who said he visited Nigeria and he never saw people who were so evil, cheating him, stealing from him. And this guy said this was a good non-racist book. He treated them as normal evil people. Yes, most of the people are egotist, evil, and so on. There was none of this patronizing attitude in it. So that's the true key to anti-racism. And the same thing I'm saying to my, and they accept it, uh, Muslim friends from Arab countries, respecting you doesn't mean, mean, oh, you beat your wife, that's your way of life. No. Respecting you means precisely not treat you as a, as a child who doesn't know what are human rights, but openly addressing to you this question. Sorry, what you are doing with me means it's not right, and so on and so on. We shouldn't, because then you get that absurd situation with some European leftists, that on the one hand, uh, you know, if I, I, as a European, look with a certain desire, do nothing, at the woman, I am immediately sexual predator. If a Muslim guy covers her woman, oh, it's not just exploitation, it could be a form of her to regain something. You know, I, I believe I'm an old-fashioned universalist. I don't believe too much into cultural differences. I don't believe that we cannot understand my, uh, uh, foreign cultures, really. If you ask me naively, it's difficult to understand some cultural cultures, but if you make, if you try it seriously, you can do it. So how could marginalized communities build economic power? Because that's like, I think, a very important thing. For <laughs> there are different ways. One way is, ah, I will give you other examples. Okay, although there are different uh, theories, why? For example, I read somewhere, maybe it's not true. I read a couple of years ago. Do you know that uh, Cuban immigrants are on average in the United States as rich as Jews, even more? Don't mean it in an They are very successful. I read an explanation what do you think, Samo? You deal with this. Maybe it works that to emigrate from Cuba, 
nonetheless involves certain risks and dangers. So it's clearly that those who are more active, creative, and so on, do it. So there is a certain positive selection. I, I think that I there's... I think there's an argument towards positive selection, but I think it's often the strength of these immigrant communities. So it's not the fact that they're filtered, but the fact that they are strong communities that exist in a different, say, hyper-atomized context that actually helps them a bunch, right? So that it's the social fabric between them. So this would be one way. For example, you may correct me if I'm wrong, but with Koreans, it's the same. Just in my domain. They have many very good philosophers, social scientists, and so on, and so on. And that is the message, you know. It's not just with affirmative action and money donations, we will help them. At some level, they should also help themselves. That's why my favorite answer of Malcolm X is in the movie. And I emphasize it. Malcolm X is great. Everyone should just always read Malcolm X. (laughs) You remember the scene in the movie when, after giving a talk at some uh, campus, a white girl comes to him and said, you impressed me so much, what can I do to help you? And he said, nothing. But it was a refine. The point, point is not don't help us. The problem is help us in our attempt to redeem ourselves. You will not do the work for us. Because if you adopt this they need help, you are already in this liberal racist trap. And Malcolm X saw this clearly. That's why, as I always repeat it, uh, I like already his idea of X. X means no, we will not. Gentlemen, uh, I'm going to jump in uh, because we have run out of time.